0: Morning my church family, morning. good to see you all here this morning. If you had to choose one thing, just generally speaking, <clears throat> that just fires people up, and, and I mean society as a whole, what would you say that would be? Man, I'm sure we can come up with a whole bunch of answers, but, but generally speaking, right at the top of the list has to be theme, things that, that we deem to be unjust. You know, the, the bad guy perpetrated evil against the innocent, and he's getting away with it. I mean, that, that just, that fires us up. How many movies have we seen where, where the bad guy is just, he's just so evil, he's so smug, he's just having his way with all, everybody who's good and weak and innocent, and the whole time we're just waiting for the payoff from when the bad guy gets his, and if he doesn't, we're going to leave the theater feeling gypped. I mean, come on, he, he can't get away with it. Or how about real life? This, this real, dirty, evil world that we live in. Going back a few years ago to something like the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting where little kids were just gunned down at school. And of course, that saddens us, but that angers us too. I mean, anybody who would do that has to pay. Or how about... Last week, Easter Sunday, when a, a Taliban splinter group set off a bomb in a park in Pakistan where Christians are, are known to gather with the, the sole intention of just maiming and killing as many people as possible. turns out many of them were women and children. Or ISIS, rounding up Christians and, and torturing them and murdering them in horrible ways for no other reason than that they're Christians. We, we could go on and on and on. The point is, if there's one thing that angers us generally, it is perceived injustice. But of course, the examples of injustice I just gave are examples of what we might call horizontal injustice. It's evil that man perpetrates against man. But our outrage over injustice is not only limited to the horizontal, but it extends to the vertical. In other words, to God, the creator and judge of the entire universe. God is accused of a lot of things by us, his creation, that he has made in his image. But but one of the regular accusations made against him by us is injustice perpetrated against us. Vertical injustice that God perpetrates against humans. And I'm not only referring to things like tsunamis and cancer, which of course people would include in that. But I'm talking about multiple examples in his own book that he authored the Bible. God's wrathful so-called injustices seem to be all over the pages of the Bible, and especially in the Old Testament and throughout history. There have been a whole lot of attempts to deal with these, some good and some bad. Well, last week, of course, as you know, was Easter Sunday, the very epicenter of our faith. And so this week, I kind of just wanted to to continue the thought, if you will, and extend our, our focus of Easter Sunday, the cross of Christ, to this week, And consider how that relates to so-called vertical injustice. And so in doing that, we're going to be looking at three of the most important truths, really, in all of Scripture and attempt to tie them all together. So we're going to be considering this morning divine justice, sin, and grace. And to do that, we are going to be looking at one of the most difficult, troubling passages in all of Scripture. This is one of those passages that that people have used to condemn God of injustice. This is a passage that makes Christians often do backflips, trying to offer explanations for it. But we're not going to do that. We're going to dive head-on this morning, take this head-on, and I hope in the end when we come out on the other side, we will have a a deeper understanding together of divine justice and and grace. And by the way, this morning uh, is heavily influenced by a chapter in R.C. Sproul's book, the Holiness of God, uh, it's, honestly, that's one of those books I think every Christian should read, but if you get to the end of this morning and you feel like you want more, I, I definitely recommend that resource to you. So please turn with me, if you would, to 1 Chronicles chapter 13. If you need some help getting there, it's roughly in the first third of your, uh, your Bible. You can find 1 and 2 Samuel, that's followed by 1 and 2 Kings, and then First 1 Chronicles. <clears throat> excuse me 1st chronicles 13 beginning in verse 1 then david consulted with the captains of the thousands and the hundreds even with every leader and David said all to all the assembly of Israel, If it seems good to you, and if it is from the Lord our God, let us send everywhere to our kinsmen who remain in all the land of Israel, also to the priests and Levites who are with them in their cities with pasture lands, that they may meet with us. And let us bring back the ark of our God to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. Then all the assembly said that they would do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. So David assembled all Israel together from the Shahor to Egypt, even to the entrance of Hamath, to bring the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim. And David and all Israel went up to Baalah, that is, to Kiriath-Jerim, which belongs to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, the Lord who is enthroned above the cherubim, where his name is called. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab, and Uzzah and Ahio drove the cart. And David and all Israel were celebrating before God with all their might even with songs and with lyres, harps, tambourines, cymbals, and with trumpets. When they came to the threshing floor of the Chidan, Uzzah put out his hand to hold the ark because the oxen nearly upset it. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, so he struck him down because he put out his hand to the ark, and he died there before God. Then David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah, and he called that place Perez-Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of God that day, saying, How can I bring the ark of God home to me? So David did not take the ark with him to the city of David, but took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. Thus the ark of God remained with the family of Obed-Edom in his house three months, and the Lord blessed the family of Obed-Edom with all that he had. Now since we're jumping here in the middle of 1 Chronicles, we need a little bit of background to understand what was happening here. And basically what was happening here is shortly after God raised up Samuel, uh, his, his prophet, the last of the judges, Israel went to battle with one of their most hated enemies, the Philistines, and during the course of this battle, the Philistines defeated them and captured the ark. And this was absolutely devastating Because the ark was what God had commanded Moses to make with very specific instructions hundreds of years earlier that was to be placed in the tabernacle in the Holy of Holies. And this is where God's presence would be amidst his people, Israel. This was where God himself would meet his people. So when this sacred object was taken from them, it was said in Israel at the time that the glory of the Lord had departed. This was absolutely devastating. But through a series of events, the ark was returned by the Philistines to a, a city called Kiriath-Jerim, a city in Israel where it sat for about 100 years. And now this brings us to First Chronicles 13. Israel's first king, Saul, mentioned in this, in this chapter, had been killed, and now David, chosen by God, has assumed the throne of Israel, and one of his first decisions as commander in chief was to move the ark back to Jerusalem, the capital of the kingdom, where it could be restored to its rightful place. So this was a celebratory moment. This would really ra- rally the entire nation together. So everyone agreed this was a great idea, and they went to get the ark, and with great pageantry and celebration, they began to make their way back with the ark, the ten miles or so back to Jerusalem, And, and everything was going great until the ox pulling the cart stumbled, which then jostled the ark, and before it was about to tip and fall off the cart, a man named Uzzah reached out his hand to steady the ark, only to be instantaneously struck down dead by God." And immediately, of course, this joyous procession halted. It says David became angry with God. He was fearful, wondering how he was going to be able to transport the Ark back to Jerusalem. Now you read this story, and, and if you're be honest, if you're being honest, don't, don't you think, what in the world? I mean, doesn't, doesn't this make you just a little bit uncomfortable? It doesn't just say Uzzah died, it says God's anger burned against him and he struck him dead. I mean, to understand how crazy this is, you just look at David's reaction. David, the Bible calls him a man after God's own heart. Not only did he know God, he knew his word, he was skilled in theology, just read the Psalms. Yet this man was angered by witnessing this outburst of God's wrath. And if he was angered, no wonder so many not nearly skilled in theology would be as well. And I think at least part of the reason why this is so confusing is that even those who have never actually ever read the Bible, we all know the Bible says God is love, right? It says repeatedly, God is full of loving kindness. He's slow to anger. And then you read this and you think, really? Sure didn't take God long to explode in anger on Uzzah. So what in the world's going on here? Well, to better understand what in the world's going on here, we have to look just a little bit further back in Scripture to God's formation of the priesthood. Under the, under the Mosaic law, God established a priesthood from the tribe of Levi. The priests were descendants of Aaron, who was Moses' right hand man, and they were responsible for the conduct of worship. But there was a special family branch within the Levites called the Kohathites, descendants of Kohath, obviously, who were set apart by God for the special significant task of caring for the sacred articles of the tabernacle. And we find the details of this in Numbers 4. You don't need to turn there. I'm not, I'm not really going to read much of it. It, go, it goes into all this extreme detail about exactly how they were supposed to handle the holy objects. And then you get to verse 15, and it says... And when Aaron and his his sons have finished covering the holy objects and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, when the camp is set out, after that the sons of of Kohath shall come to carry them so that they may not touch the holy objects and die. And then skipping down to verse 17, then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, Do not let the tribe of the families of the Kohathites be cut off from among the Levites, but do this to them that they may live and not die when they approach the most holy objects. Verse 20, but they shall not go in to see the holy objects even for a moment, lest they die. So remember, this is, this is pre-temple. The ark was, was to be set up in the tabernacle, which was essentially a portable tent. So when Israel moved, the tabernacle moved. But God required when that happened, it and all its sacred in, instruments had to be treated in a very specific way, or he said explicitly three times, they will die. And by the way, one last piece of information. Many scholars believe that Uzzah was a Kohathite, which is why he was manning the ark that day. And if that's the case, he certainly would have been well-trained his entire life on exactly what he was supposed to be doing in this case. So now with that bit of background, let's look at this scene again. As the ark is being transported, certainly the people were, were rightly, joyfully praising God. But interestingly, God didn't command that. What he did command was the ark to be made with golden rings through which poles were to be inserted so that the Kohathites could carry the ark by the poles and not touch it and break God's command. We don't read anything about that here in First Chronicles 13. Not only was the ark not being carried by poles, it was put on an ox cart. That alone was a capital crime. It should have never been transported in that way in the first place. This was in direct disobedience to God's word. On top of that, as we read, God commanded the Kohathites to not even look on the ark or they would die. Yet despite God's explicit word, Uzzah, forbidden to look and touch the ark, saw the ark teetering, reached out his hand, placed it on the ark to keep it from falling to the ground. Okay. Even with all of that background, I'm guessing probably still many of our responses are, okay, I get it, but man, I am still just not comfortable with this. I mean, why would God do that? If anything, Uzzah was being heroic, wasn't he? I mean, he did what we all would do. He was keeping the ark from being defamed and polluted and falling to the ground. He was treating God's holy ark with honor, wasn't he? That's probably how we view this, so it makes us uncomfortable. And so we either try and explain it away, like many have. I've read explanations such as Uzzah had so much respect for the sacred ark that when he touched it, he was so overcome with fright, he died on the spot of a heart attack, even though the text says nothing about that. Or or others, this would be typical of liberal theology. Others would say, uh, you know, this is the writer's understanding of what happened, but he was an ancient primitive with superstitious beliefs. That's what he thought happened. Of course, we all know that didn't really happen. Either way, people are trying to let God off the hook for responsibility in this matter. But God doesn't ask to be let off the hook. This is his word that he penned every word of, and he makes it very clear what happened, which leaves many others at least honestly recognizing that, but then accusing him of divine injustice. I mean, what kind of God is this? This is the God you guys worship? Are you serious? But what's at the root of that? The reason we try and offer excuses or turn around and accuse God The reason we so easily misunderstand divine justice is because we have such a light view of our sin and we have such a high view of ourselves. It's amazing how we can be okay with our sin, even as Christians. I mean, we know it's bad and we ask forgiveness. But we don't often feel the true weight of its offense before our holy God. Like I said, we think it's not really as bad as it is, and we think we're a lot lot better than we really are. So for us to really understand the first truth of the day, divine justice, we have to really understand and feel the true weight of our sin. The second truth we're going to be focusing on, those two go together. So we must understand what our sin means before our holy God, And we must understand who that holy God says that we are. So first, we have to understand what our sin means before God. And I think the simplest way to do that is to look at what God, our creator and judge, said the punishment of our sin would be. God is totally righteous. He's the perfect judge. He can never render injustice. It's literally impossible in his character to do that. So if the punishment fits the crime, then the severity of the punishment for our sin that the perfect judge renders should give us a clue as to how serious our sin really is. Of course, we know God created Adam and Eve as sinless humans in unstained relationship with him in the garden. And he said they had access to all of the trees except for one, and if they ate from that one tree, he was explicit that the penalty would be death. That's how vile disgusting, and offensive sin, any sin, all sin is, before God. And as we all know, they rebelled against God and directly disobeyed His word, and thus sin and death entered the world. And as we have all sinned, we're all sinners, every single one of us will die too. The human race has a 100% incurable death rate. We will die at different times and we'll die in different ways, but every one of us are condemned sinners on death row awaiting our execution. So we're asking, is that unjust? Was it unjust for God to say to Adam and Eve that they'd die if they sinned? Was it unjust for God to impose the death penalty on all their offspring, us, the entire human race? And if we answer yes or we equivocate at all, we better be careful because at that point... We're slandering the character of God. It means that we're actually standing in judgment over the righteous, perfect judge of the universe. But most importantly, it shows that we truly don't understand what sin is before God. He made it crystal clear what it is, yet we can often make light of it. We excuse it away. We justify it. We use euphemisms like mistake or inappropriate. But we can't do that. We have to say, no, God is perfectly just in, con- in condemning me, a sinner, to death and mean that from the bottom of our souls because we understand what our sin is before God. And the way that we do that is the second piece in really grasping sin, as I said, that is understanding who our holy, perfect God says we are. Not who we like to think we are, but who God says we are. And what God's word says is that we are his creatures. He's the creator, we're the creatures. We didn't evolve, we didn't end up here by chance. He created us, he breathed life into us, he placed us at this specific time in history, in this specific nation, and of all his magnificent creation, he gave us the immense privilege of being his image bearers. We were actually made in the image of the king of the universe. But we chose to rebel against him and his word. And rather than using our lives for his purposes, for his glory, we chose to use it for our own. And that's really nothing short of treason. That's what sin is. It's it's cosmic treason, which, by the way, is punishable by death in our country. But this this treason is far more wicked than any human traitor could ever commit against any earthly kingdom. Because this treason is against the, the perfect holy king of the universe who gives us life and purpose for our lives to image and glorify him and part of how we do that is to obey his perfect standard and so that means even the most what we would call insignificant sin is really saying to the righteous god your law and your word is not good my law and my word are better you don't deserve authority over me I deserve authority over you. I don't have to do what you command me to do. I can do what I command me to do. See, I'm king, not you. Every sin is a revolt and a rebellious act in which we stand in opposition to the one who gives and sustains our very lives. Every heartbeat comes from him and we're standing in opposition to him. So we ask again, is God unjust in punishing us for sin with death? And the answer is not for a second. Of course, there is no injustice with God. But also, we're not innocent. We intentionally, repeatedly transgress his standard, the punishment of which he has made very clear, but we do it anyway. We're not innocent. There are no innocent people. Going back to the examples that I started with, with, you know, Pakistan bomb and, or, or ISIS. You know, all of those victims were innocent in the sense that they did nothing to provoke their murderers to kill them. They, they weren't wrong. They, they were innocent. But again, that's on the horizontal level. But there's no such thing as our innocence in the vertical relationship that we have with our God. As Romans chapter 3 says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. We are not innocent. We are all rebellious sinners worthy of death. And when we truly grasp... The rebellion and treason; our sin is against God. We will stop accusing God of justice when "quote unquote" bad things happen to good people, or when He acts in the lives of His creation in ways that upset us, such as His striking down Uzzah. In fact, going back to Uzzah, when we understand what our sin is before God and who we really are, it will have a revolutionary change in our understanding of our text this morning. R.C. Sproul illuminates this perfectly. He says. Rather than viewing Uzzah's act of steadying the ark as an act of holy heroism, we will see that it was an act of arrogance, a sin of presumption. Uzzah assumed that his hand was less polluted than the earth, but it wasn't the ground or the mud that would desecrate the ark. It was the touch of man. The earth is an obedient creature. It does what God tells it to. It brings forth its yield in its season. It obeys the law of nature. When the temperature falls to a certain point, the ground freezes. When water is added to the dust, it becomes mud, just as God designed it. The ground doesn't commit cosmic treason. There's nothing polluted about the ground. God did not want his holy throne touched by that which was contaminated by evil, that which was in rebellion to him. Man. It was man's touch that was forbidden. That's what I said earlier. The reason we feel God is unjust is because we have a low view of sin and a high view of ourselves. Just like Uzzah, we think the ground is polluted and dirty when in fact it isn't, we are. When we truly grasp what our sin is before God and who we are, the question we ask will no longer be, why does God punish sin like Uzzah? But rather, why does he permit the ongoing human rebellion? I mean, think about it. What, what king, what ruler would display so much patience with a populace that's just in continual rebellion against him? I mean, God told Adam and Eve that the punishment of their sin, their rebellion would be death, real, physical death. And when they sin, death entered the human race. But they weren't immediately struck down. God granted mercy. He granted grace. He actually delayed justice so that grace could work. And it's the same with us. I mean, if we're honest, each one of us should have been struck dead countless times for our constant rebellion against God, but we're all here. That doesn't mean justice has been denied. A perfect judge can never just sweep aside our sin, but it means justice has been delayed so God's grace can be shown and exercised. And that leads us to the third truth of this morning, God's grace, which unfortunately often rather than, than thankfully recognizing God's grace, we can have a tendency to actually take advantage of it. I don't know how, how often you might stop and realize how much we constantly live in God's grace. Like I said, if, if his justice were just promptly meted out, this world in our lives would look very different. God is indeed full of loving kindness. He is indeed slow to anger. We're so used to living in his grace and we're so, so accustomed to be, his being slow to anger that when his righteous anger finally does erupt, like in the case of Uzzah, we're totally shocked and offended by it. Rather than realizing God's patience and delaying the justice that we deserve so that we would recognize his grace, repent, and live for his glory as we were created to, many instead use this grace as more opportunity to be even more defiant in their sin thinking either God doesn't see, he doesn't care, or it's not really that big of a deal anyway. And, and we as Christians, we can do the same by dismissing our sin, by not being too concerned with what we allow into our lives, what we do, what we say. Because, hey, we're covered by grace. I mean, we're the people that are covered by grace. And anyway, that Old Testament stuff, that doesn't happen anymore. I mean, God's not swallowing up people with the ground and striking down entire armies with angels. I mean, that's, that's sort of that, that wrathful God of the Old Testament. We, we live in love and grace now. It's all about the love and grace of Jesus. That's a surprisingly common sentiment. And every time I hear something like that, I just think, you know, are, are you sure about that? Now, certainly there are over 600 references to God's wrath in the Old Testament. And although God's patience is amazingly displayed throughout the pages of the Old Testament, undoubtedly there are vivid scenes of judgment like what we're studying this morning. But this dichotomy between the wrathful God of the Old Testament and the God of love Jesus in the New Testament is a false dichotomy, and really it just displays our emphasis on the temporal over the eternal. And here's what I mean by that. Almost all of the judgments in the Old Testament are temporal judgments. Man losing his physical life. But God's wrath doesn't go away in the New Testament. If anything, it's just ramped up because the constant threat of judgment in the New Testament by Jesus specifically by the way, isn't just that you lose your physical life. It's that you will, you will suffer eternal death and hell unless you repent. So the wrath of God hasn't gone away. Really, it's just been ramped up from the temporal to the eternal. And that's what Christ himself referred to in Luke chapter 13. Again, you don't You don't need to flip there if you don't want. Luke chapter 13 says, Now on the same occasion there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So here we have some people that approached Jesus about a a recent news story where some Galileans were slain by Pilate's soldiers while offering sacrifices at the temple so that their blood was mixed by the blood of sacrifice. And they cited this specific event because this was horrifying. I mean, these weren't criminals, these were, were religious Jews who, who, while they were in the temple offering a sacrifice, were killed, and even worse, this injustice was perpetrated by the hated Roman occupiers. I mean, this was outrageous to the core to a Jew. So really, they're, they're asking the question many ask, why does God allow innocent people to suffer? This is the so-called problem of evil. How, how is uh, evil consistent with God's goodness? But not only does Jesus not evade this challenge, he actually makes it more difficult on himself by bringing up another recent news story in which 18 people were killed when a tower in Siloam fell on them. It appears these 18 people were just in the wrong place at the wrong time, just walking down the street, tower fell on their head, and they died. And you read that, and you're sort of like, Jesus, I mean, what, what, were, you, what were you thinking? I mean, what apologist worth his salt would make his job more difficult? I mean, if someone asked you, you know, why a good God would allow kids to be murdered in school, would you say, ha, that's nothing. What about 2004 when that tsunami killed 200,000 people? I mean, that kind of stuff freaks us out. We don't really know how to handle that stuff. We wouldn't intentionally compound it. But Jesus did that because he was making a very specific point that would shock them and really should shock us as well. With both of, of these recent tragedies cited, I think it's interesting that Jesus didn't go into a long theodicy attempting to argue or explain God's goodness and omnipotence in light of such seemingly senseless tragedies. I find it interesting interesting that he didn't even offer any sympathy or condolences. Instead, he rebuked them and he said, Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. What Jesus was essentially saying was, God's usual course of action is grace. But you've gotten so used to that, it no longer amazes you. you. You totally take it for granted so that in the face of tragedy, you're asking a question implying God was unjust to his own people, but that's the wrong question. What you should be asking is, why didn't that tower fall on my head? Their very question illustrated they weren't amazed by God's grace. They didn't realize the significance of their sin. And they didn't realize that all those tragedies should have done was remind them of what sinners they were, how deserving they were of punishment, and thus to repent because a just eternal punishment is at stake. They were taking grace for granted and so can we. Again, quoting R.C. Sproul, he said, In two decades of theology, I've had countless students ask me, why doesn't God save everybody? Only once did a student come to me and say, you know, there's something I just can't figure out. Why did God redeem me? Do you ask that? Are you amazed that God would actually save a sinner like you? Or do you know to say that, but really, you're not that amazed that God has redeemed you. I mean, there's a whole lot of people worse than you. You can supply a list if you need to. And anyway, you've done a lot of good things. In fact, God's maybe even a little bit justified in including you in his redemptive purposes. Or maybe instead you blame God for injustices done in your life. You don't feel like he's been fair to you. You're keeping score and it seems like you've had a whole lot more to deal with than other people. And you don't think that's fair. And I'm not talking about a, you know, sort of bitter, resentful, you know, fist in the air up at God sort of guy. I'm just talking about a normal Christian who's here this morning worshiping the Lord. But there's these thoughts going on in our heads. Maybe we've all thought such things that, at one time or another. We, we certainly recognize God is gracious. We, we thank him for it. We come and we sing songs about it. But maybe deep down, we don't think he's been quite gracious in it, uh, enough. In one way or another, we feel we deserve a little bit more from Him. And again, that's the problem. Too often, we're amazed by God's justice. It's shocking to us. But we're not really that amazed by His amazing grace. We actually think grace is deserved and justice isn't when the exact opposite is what is true. It's literally impossible for anyone to ever deserve grace. It's the very definition of grace. It's undeserved blessing freely bestowed on humans by God. If we want to talk about what we deserve, we better tread lightly. Because at that point, we're no longer talking about grace, but we're talking about justice. The only thing we deserve is eternal hell. Because... God is the offended party because of our sin. We are not the offended party because of his righteous, perfect justice as a result of our sin. That's what we have to know. And it is only by understanding that all that really, really hard truth that we've just been kind of soaking in for the last few minutes... It's only by truly understanding that, that we can even begin to grasp the cross. If you're concerned about injustice, you shouldn't be looking at cancer or ISIS or whatever is going on in your life. You should be looking at the most brutal act of divine wrath and justice ever shown in history, and that's the cross of Christ. We've been talking about how horribly offensive our sin is before God can't be in His presence. He will justly punish it. Well, let's take that and apply it to 2 Corinthians 5.21, which says, He, God the Father, made Him, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. And this is what that means in light of what we studied this morning. That means God Himself The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, took on the nature of man while retaining his divine nature, fully God, fully man. He lived a sinless, perfect life. He was literally the only human ever born, only person ever born who actually doesn't deserve hell or punishment of any sort, yet he voluntarily became sin, which means he became the most grotesque vile thing ever on the planet as he hung on that cross with your sin my sin the weight of the sin of his people this perfect spotless God man became completely totally and disgusting and repugnant to the Father And as a result, Jesus Christ was emotionally and judicially abandoned by him as the Holy Righteous Father poured out the full weight of his wrath, the wrath due you and me on this sin-covered thing, his son hanging on the cross. The cross was simultaneously the most horrible display of God's vengeance and the most beautiful example of God's love and grace in history. It's how God's justice and God's grace could be reconciled and perfectly displayed as all of this was done for God's glory and our undeserved benefit. Wrath and mercy, ugly and beautiful, justice and grace. It is absolutely astounding what God accomplished on the cross. So many struggle with what they deem to be injustices by God. But again, if that's our concern, we should be completely focused on the cross. And as the weight of what Christ did and who we are and what our sin really means comes upon us, we have a right understanding of God's sin and justice, then we will understand God's amazing undeserved grace shown on the cross and then our view of injustice completely changes we'll now look at as a and instead of questioning god or making excuses we will know that's exactly what i deserve and more And as a result, we will just run to the cross and forever stand amazed that Christ would suffer and die for us. We will know beyond a shadow of a doubt that it is us who deserve to suffer in hell for eternity. And we will know the only reason we're alive and breathing today and have eternal life to look forward to is because of... God's gift of free, unmerited grace that he gives us. And so every time that we are faced with what the world calls divine injustice, we're just reminded of the reality of our sin and God's answer, the cross. And that those are just reminders to the world to repent, turn from their sins, surrender their lives completely to Jesus Christ as their only Lord, Savior, Master, and Treasure. And for those of us who have already done that, We will not take grace for granted. We will not take the cross for granted. We will not just go on living however we want to live. Living for us. Living to be comfortable. Living without concern for making disciples of the nations. Living without a whole lot of concern for holiness. Because Jesus did not hang on that cross as the Father poured out his unimaginable wrath on him for our sins. So that we could just say a prayer asking Jesus into our hearts. And then go on living however we want to. Jesus died on that cross and bodily rose three days later where he ascended to the Father and sits at his right hand of the King of the universe right now so that... He could save and redeem a people that will live on earth as his holy representatives, as his heralds, who don't look like or represent the world, but who joyfully, obediently represent him and and live for him, who gladly forsake the treasures of the world, because they found their true, all-satisfying treasure, Jesus Christ, and as a result, who live to image him to the world, professing salvation in his name no matter the cost, as we eagerly await our master's return to take his redeemed to our eternal home in his presence forever, and we do all of that in the power of his grace. Justice, sin, and grace. Three truths we absolutely must know to understand the cross. And when we do, it's, it's almost too much to take. It's overwhelming, but it's what should drive our every breath as we live lives forever astounded at our amazing God who actually saves us. Let's pray. Our God, we are so grateful for your glorious truth. I just pray now that as we we approach communion, we would just be overwhelmed in a way that maybe we never have, with the work that you did on the cross, that you have saved us through your grace and that we continually live in the power of your grace, Lord. We just want to pour out our our lives and worship to you now. And we pray that you would do that work in our lives. And it's all for your glory and your holy, perfect name. Amen.